A quintessential cops and robbers story and an archetypal heist film set in an L.A. nearly devoid of its usual glitz and glamour. For today's episode, we watch Michael Mann's 1995 film, Heat. Welcome to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. So Heat, written and directed by uh, Michael Mann, shot by Dante Spinotti for a budget of $60 million. Huge all-star cast. Uh, I mean, the main two, obviously, Al Pacino and De Niro are the two big stars. But there are a ton of appearances by very well-known people. Um, a ton of really great performances by new up-and-comers. Um, Natalie Portman in this movie, for the small amount that she has, really impressed me. Um, we get some Ashley Judd. We get some Dennis Haysbert, who's not a huge name, but his performances for the small pieces he has are quite fantastic. Diana Venora, Diane Venora, sorry. We've got William Fickner in there. Uh, and, of course, the classic Danny Trejo. So, Mike, why don't you tell me why you picked it for us? There's actually no real reason I picked it other than I really like this movie, and it's it's one of my all-time favorites. And being that I've... I mean, we're a, few, we're a few episodes down the road now, but I've still, in relative time, recently joined this podcast... Early on here, we're probably I'm going to probably get out a few more of my favorites in the early weeks. It's a good way to do it. Um, this film was a film I th- don't believe I saw in theaters. I was a little too young. Um, but it was a movie that I was instantly aware of. And because these, like, there was, you know, there was a few titans of acting and they were mainly men. And of those mainly men, two of the biggest were Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And this movie was very much sold on the backs of these two men are finally going to appear on screen together as they were both in Godfather 2, but in two separate timelines, so they don't appear ever together. And um, and so I was very aware of this movie and couldn't wait to see it. And so I saw it like when I was 13 or 14 years old on VHS oh, wow. at home for the first time and um, definitely didn't understand everything that was going on. <laughs> but it's a credit to the film that like I loved it then, even not understanding the story and some of the complexities that I understand now. But I still like the flow of it didn't bore me. It, it's a nearly a three hour movie, and yeah. the fourteen year old version of me was enthralled with it. The entire I didn't time. even notice when I watched it that it was that long until after. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it, it takes a it's a chunk of time. It takes some dedication, and so it's it was um it was uh, one of the rare but. Um, was kind of a sign of, of, of a big film was a, uh, not, and I mean, I didn't mean big in length, but I mean big, big, like uh tent poly kind of thing. It was a double VHS. Oh, <laughs> so like yeah, this yeah. was one Braveheart was one. Uh, Titanic um, was one. Titanic was one. Yeah. And so there was a few of them in your collection. Of I course, had, but, uh, I had Braveheart and Titanic. Yeah. And not so, that I ever watched the Titanic actually, but, but, but also it, it provides a it was a very interesting because if my memory serves me the vhs split happens just as they get in the helicopters i think to chase uh, to chase neil right and okay. then right before the meeting so the meeting happens on the second vhs oh so it's I, th- I think it's like the start of the second VHS. For I mean, that movie. makes sense. That makes Not sense. that none of this matters, but it's just that this is a movie that I like, I really loved and watching it in that format was also weird because it was wide. It was a, this is a widescreen movie 
and even in VHS was built for 4.3, so it was pan and scanned. So there was a big rumor when I was a kid and growing up, and it wasn't like it was till until this movie started getting honored at like 10th anniversaries and stuff in like 2005, Michael Mann finally put this to rest. But there was a big rumor for about 10 years that De Niro and Pacino shot that coffee shop scene separately. Oh, really? Because in the pan and scan version, you don't get the over the shoulder. Right. It's clean it's two, singles. Yeah, yeah. It's single, 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 single. And there is a t- like a wide two shot. But it, but it was like, oh, they shot that master or whatever. And then they both, they were like, no, I don't want to be in the presence of the other one or whatever <laughs> while they're doing the work, which is insane because uh, yeah. actors would love another, love other great actors to work off of. Um, but of course they had to be in that scene. That scene is so iconic and it, and it's such a great, um, example of s- subtleties in acting and, and character work, I think, um, subtle character work that it's, it's been, it's studied by actors and, and directors and anybody that loves film generally, both you and I have talked in the past, how independently in our film schools, our film programs, we were both given this scene as a scene study so yeah this this movie has been is one of the early movies that i loved in my life as a more uh, mature person i guess (laughs) when you're getting out of like kids movies like this was one of the first adult movies i liked and then it's and it's been relatively in my life ever since then and i it's a movie i revisit and watch not not super often anymore but still often enough that it's it's burned into my memory forever fair enough what about yourself uh i have a a funny relationship with this movie which is that i hadn't actually watched it before this show which is i suppose not that uncommon for me but what makes it interesting is that like like you said it was brought in my into my film school and we watched that cafe scene specifically as like a perfect example of how to shoot a conversation and how to like use uh, camera size and angle to like tell your story and bring the audience into the conversation by slowly getting tighter and tighter as you go through and things like that. And I remember watching that scene and being kind of confused by the acting in it a little bit. Um, and like there were some great moments and things, but like without the context of the whole movie, it felt uh, kind of bad to me a little bit. And I didn't know why everybody was touting it. Uh, and one of the guys in my in my class at the time was like, oh, well, this is my favorite movie of all time. We have to watch the whole thing now that I've seen the one scene. And they booked out the theater at our school to watch it and I couldn't make it. So then I just forever was confused about this scene and not understanding why everybody loved it so much. And then for this podcast, I finally just checked it out, and it suddenly makes way, way, way more sense now that I know what those characters are and what they're doing and and how they've played them up until that point. It it fell together very well. Um, so yeah, this is my first time watching it. So I don't know how familiar you are with other works by Michael Mann. Um, not super. I know of them. I think I may have seen one or two other ones, but so again, he's one of these guys that is, um, without me knowing who he was, I watched a lot of his stuff prior to then start when I then when I started like going looking at films I liked and then researching directors and stuff and I was like oh he was he did that and that and See, that that's why I say maybe one or two because I'm sure that I've seen a couple of his movies without really knowing I was watching his movies right and in the 90s he would like 
for directing big pictures, he did three or four in the nineties, and they were all like major. Did he do hits. Die Hard? No, no, no. Okay, but uh, no, he um, he did Last of the Mohicans. Okay, yeah. So that won all sorts of Oscars, and Daniel Day Lewis was awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then he also did a movie called The Insider, which is a movie with Russell Crowe, which was part of like the blossoming of Russell Crowe with L.A. Confidential, The Insider. And a few other movies. I have heard of it, but I haven't seen that one. And he has, and then he has this movie, and he has, I think, one other movie in the '90s. But anyways, he's uh, he created Miami Vice, the television show, and then later the movie, the remake movie. Um, he w- he was like a show creator that was always involved with shows that were about um, about cops and robbers. He he's he's very focused on this relationship uh, this two-sided coin of the of the cops and robbers and how quintessentially they are the same and they're divided by this kind of paperwork more than anything else like that, that was one of the first notes i made when i started noting down things that i was gonna want to talk about theme wise was this idea that uh you know the police are um a set of rules and paperwork away from just being criminal criminals anyways themselves. Yeah. And it's, and that's something that, I mean, it was definitely visible in various forms of media and stuff prior to 1995, but this movie is one of those first movies in my recollection that really started with examples where you would see, um, police acting like criminals to get information out of crime, to extort information out of criminals or to do various, like, to gain an advantage on the greater criminals they're chasing, they would like perform criminally to these lesser criminals. Yeah. And, well, and- I mean, the the scene with uh, uh, Pacino talking to what's his contact name in that chop shop. Um, right. Yeah. His 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 CI. Yeah. Yeah. The the uh, the very sort of abusive and violent behavior he exerts as a way. And what was it? Uh, he he said something about like trying to keep him on his feet so he's like singing the song or like yelling things that didn't need to be yelled you know like really erratic sort of stuff yeah and funny enough this is so this is like the second movie in my head that is like is 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 this pacino is the loud crazy pacino yeah um there's i mean there's some other performances like the pacino that i know character right whereas the like 70s pacino stuff is like more subtle subdued version of this it he's still you can see him in both but he's now like this bigger broader thing and part of that is apparently Oh, well, we'll get to that later. I, okay. So okay. I have so he he did a few things with his character, unbeknownst a little bit to the director, that I think uh, explains some of his overwrought uh, line deliveries. Right. Um, but anyway, he uh, this is the, this movie. I guess what my whole point was plays to a lot of the themes that Michael Mann likes to play with. Um, but I think like this is his opus. I think this is when he gets it right the best. And the other thing that one of the main things he did in this movie that was different than a lot of other movies at the time was the locations he chose to shoot in. And this was a very big, very big thing because he shot an L.A. that people from L.A. recognized, but that the rest of the world had never really seen before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I didn't even really know. Like, they never, I don't know if they say it outright. Maybe they do. But I didn't really know that it was meant to be in L.A. until they started talking about LAX, I guess, closer to the end. Right. Oh, the, oh, that's really interesting. Because um, it's such a quintessential L.A. movie in my head that I, 
like it, I'm I'm with it the whole time that it's LA. As soon as I knew it was, I was like, oh yeah, of course. That but makes to you, sense. it could have been Miami, maybe. It could have been so, Miami, something. or it could have been like interesting, unnamed big city. Right. Right. Okay. Fair enough. But that was what I thought was really cool was, and to people in LA, like the locations, the geography of the locations is a little wacky and it's a little out and it's a little all over the place and it's a little bit more. We talked about that last week. Yeah, exactly. So I guess there's a bit of that going on in here, but he didn't pick it based on that thing. He picked it on look and he picked it on like ambiance and stuff like that. Like the, uh, you mentioned the chop shop that may have been a real chop shop but was definitely a real cockfighting dogfighting ring i heard something about that so yeah. th- so michael mann says on the commentary that that was a real place where dogfighting and cockfighting happened and he was like they also had cars there that they seemed to work on uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh um, but doesn't right, and then but then says so that was in an area of L.A. apparently called Dogtown, which the my reference to that would be Lords of Dogtown, the skateboarding dock. Oh right, I heard. Yeah, um, I but I don't know place. if that's the same thing, or if that's I a whole. Uh, but um, this apparently is a very like Latino Spanish area of L.A. or at the time it was, and so just like with apparently South Central and stuff. The cops don't really patrol that area. They're left to fend for themselves a little bit. And because of that, there was an operational dogfighting, cockfighting um, place that they were able to location scout and then shoot in without them, the people who operated that place, I guess, worrying about the authorities. Uh, so that's kind of crazy. But I um, and and like it, it looked so good that. Yeah, that that was a fantastic set. I mean, if uh, me as a filmmaker today, I would have an ethical, very big ethical problem with that. But I do, I do think there's something interesting and raw about that as well. Um, there's also, it's there's not also... like they established it. It was, it was already there, and they just yeah. took advantage of a cool location. But uh, there, I would have some ethical issues with that. Yeah, I mean, it would feel a little bit like you were supporting it maybe by being there. But I, I feel also like at when this movie was being made, there was a lot of places they went that like now you'd probably never be able to, like LAX, for example. Yeah. Like, you'd never be able to shoot the way they did there now. So they, they would have tightened security eventually anyway on shooting at locations like that. But they, they shot at, for real at LAX and, and the, I mean, September you 11th. literally ran in front of an, a moving plane that was actually there and taking off. And S- September 11th essentially shut down any chance of some of of remaking this movie shot for shot ever again, because uh, because you would never shoot an airport now. Um, but even if that event didn't happen in 2001, I think you by 2021, I don't think you'd be able to shoot at an airport. Well, interference on on comms and things like that would be like even well, even for that, like we can't of the foot- a lot of the times yeah. get close because a radio. Think of the footprint of uh, uh, even a small unit film production of this size would like the small unit of a multi-million dollar movie. It's is like, a, is still like even if if they're down to the smallest things they're still you're still around 20. So yeah, then you have 20 people with small. gear at the edge of a like a uh yeah, like you're saying right at the end of the runway. Um uh, but it, yeah, the end of this movie is iconic because 
the the lighting and everything in that but yes yeah, so, but also the the tension building of it but yes yeah. no and the, and the lighting plays into that which yeah. is something that's really cool but I, I guess the first technician i wanted to shout out for this uh podcast was the location scout location manager because i thought they killed it like um it's by Michael Mann. There's a movie you might have seen that's more recent than this film called Collateral, starring Tom Cruise and you Jimmy know, Fox. I've seen it around, but I've never actually watched it. It's also great. It's not as great as this, but it's really great. And one of the things that it's really great as is showing a similar side to L.A. is this shows. And in fact, the train that opens this movie that uh, Robert De Niro gets off of is where that movie ends. But that oh, was cool. apparently coincidence. Not, so, but because of it. Sure, it is. <laughs> uh, but, but I, I like I've always when I watched that movie, I thought of it a bit as a, like a spiritual sequel to this movie. Like it was say, saying it had similar themes of L.A. and like. Um, it had similar themes, anyways, to this, and that's as far as I'll say. But you yeah, should check that enough. out. Uh, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, it's a good one. If you like this movie, I think you would like that one. Um, but yeah, as far as the cinematography in this movie, um, for the most part, it blew me away. And there's some absolutely phenomenal shots. And Michael Mann, like this man, eats with night exterior city, urban night exterior. I, I did notice something with those, though, and I don't know. I was trying to find an answer for what it was because there's a lot of different things it could be. But I was noticing a lot on those big wides, like the helicopter shots of the night city and stuff, and even some shots that weren't uh, big, like ultra, uh, uh, not um, extreme long shots and whatever, but like there was distortion happening somewhat in it. There was either like a weird stretching or there was like a f uh, uh, blurring out around some of the... And I don't know if that... Because I watched it on Prime. So you imagine that it would be the proper version in the proper aspect ratio. So I don't know why that was happening. It looked like lens distortion maybe or something. Oh, that's interesting. I, I do remember when I first watched this back in the day that like the lights seem to in an almost ironic way shimmer in the distance and and like uh, one, of, one of the things that it, it did with the distortion was it started feeling like some of the city elements were like flat oh that or like a mat or something i didn't pick up on that but i mean that could be as much as they might have been shooting on something like a really wide angled lens like an anamorphic yeah. or something that was yeah so that that was kind of what i thought no but, but something wide-ish yeah and depending um, on the lens you could maybe have a lens that has some kind of something that gave it that i don't know anyways i just if you knew something i was curious no I, I didn't um but I, the but the night exteriors and then the night ex like the wides and stuff like that look beautiful um, yeah but the stuff he shot up close i thought looked really really good as well uh, when they go to, go to kill Wingro, they, they when they walk out of the coffee shop and then they throw him on the ground, he's like, wait, because the cop car comes by. Uh, Tom Sizemore tells Robert De Niro to wait. The cop car is there, so they pause for a second. He looks up, and then that gives Wingro a chance to roll under a car, presumably, and escape. Crawl that, that shot, that scene is like... <laughs> it. Every time we light, you and I light a night exterior for any of the movies you and I do, that's what that essentially that's what i'm going for like <laughs> that scene it, it to me is almost perfectly lit and i and i would really love to see the schematics and stuff from it because it doesn't feel like they used a lot of light no no it didn't but like 
I don't know what they like they did obviously they scouted the poop out of this movie so they would have went there at various times of day to each location they would have definitely gone there at night they would have definitely gone there at night when there was a wet down because there was a wet down this night yeah yeah and they would have taken production stills and very or not production stills but they would have taken stills location stills and stuff and getting all these looks and stuff down um, and there's like a neon light effect and these urban kind of sodiumy lights in that scene um, that I don't know what's there naturally and what was added because a lot of it could have been added by them. So I don't want to take credit away f- from the- either way. It's yeah, it's yeah, a brilliant yeah. bit of lighting. Um, and there's lots of light in area that you needed lots of light when like they open up a trunk that's lined with black plastic. You that can kind be... of it had like that sort of darkness to it though that like you could almost couldn't tell at some point. Right, but the way the plastic the way the plastic was picking up the light, it looked really like I instantly knew it was lined in plastic and that yeah. they had prepped it and that that was like one of the brighter shots and then anyway but then also there's like really cool silhouette stuff of Tom Sizemore and and Danny Trejo and some of the other people and I just I really really liked that scene especially but there's a bunch of scenes just like it well there there's some really interesting I mean and this isn't really so much as a scene as it's like a cutaway but it's it's De Niro going back to his uh nice beachfront property in the middle of the night with all the lights off and it's just him kind of silhouetted against his window uh really really dim blue like super nice frame super nice uh like even but i don't know there was something about that shot that just really stuck out um and then they cut to this close-up like extreme close-up of like his jaw just the little corner and it's like there's almost no detail in the shot but it's just but yeah, it's still, for whatever reason, I was like, that looks so good. And they use that off-angle close-up a few times. Later, when um, when the cop, who later in his career plays Bubba Gump, uh, <laughs> uh, is is intimidating Ashley Judd, and there they, there's this weird close-up where she's in the foreground. It's like this off-center close-up of her with him over in the like him over her shoulder kind of thing against a wall um but yeah it's uh you're right that scene also i like i wrote down three or four scenes that i wanted to talk about really positively and that was another one there's a um so apparently and i learned this from watching the commentary michael mann saw a painting and in the foreground on uh, there's a coffee table and there's a gun on the coffee table and in the uh in the background of the painting is a window with a man in silhouette with his one arm up like de niro does yeah yeah and and he was like there's something so this is a you don't know if it's a good guy or bad guy but he's a man as michael mann describes him who lives um an aggressive lifestyle where there's like violence is a is a actuality and and then so to have so that's what the gun tells us in the foreground and then his posture and like that fed up or tired lean against a wall tells you something about the toll that life is taking on him and um and then he just essentially recreated that painting i didn't know that but that's super cool uh and that that gives a lot to that scene that i didn't think about and yeah and and so and it and i but i think that even if you didn't consciously think about it i think subconsciously your brain would have seen gun would have seen i certainly felt the tired tired man and then been like oh this is telling me a lot about him because the him trying to get out of the game a bit becomes a big part of the plot 
and oh, uh, yeah, yeah. and why his character deviates from be- the the rules that his character lives by is because of this wanting to get out of the game thing because he's tired which is established in he's the finally first found 10 somebody minutes. that he wants to get out of the game with yeah and in fact another really cool thing about that same shot that with the so it it's it's like a um it's a morning magic hour shot so it's the sun hasn't crested this but it, we're in that blue violet sky and he's looking out into like an uh, like well he's looking out into the sky so it's just this monochromatic almost blue setting and then later in the scene um when they all meet up all the families go to the chinese place all the the bad guys families when they're when they're spying the, on the cops cr- are spying the criminal on them. families all go yeah and the cops are spying on them so that meal um he's the only one um without Vin- a partner yeah yeah so neil's the only one macaulay's the only one without a partner there and there's this really a bunch of really cool shots one of which is through val kilmer and ashley judd like it it it's behind everybody and then you're be you you look between them and it's uh, De Niro obviously across the table and he's looking, looking around, looking around and then he looks straight across at them and it like spikes the lens of the camera and it's this really kind of uncomfortable moment but with all the context of him spying on Ashley Judd and then saying, you take Chris back one more time. If he screws up again, I'll set you up wherever you want. It's all of that, like all of that context of all this like toxic potentially relationship and everything and um but it's all played with just this like looks and stuff and that is some of the cinematography that i really like about about michael mann but further on is just past that he gets up and he calls uh amy brenneman uh, yeah i forget her name in the uh, i forget what her name is uh, it's edie edie uh um i just know her as judging amy because she mean, was fair. judging amy forever <laughs> on tv anyway uh but she uh she uh, she picks up the phone or whatever and he's stepped away and they purposely picked that blue color in that moment um so if you it, when he's on the phone if you look up this like a, uh, that shot he's in a like blue environment again and yeah, it almost looked like there was a blue screen beside him nearly and so that was apparently picked very intentionally and it was to link his thoughts in that moment to his thoughts, which would have been in the shot we were just talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that like, I, that, that thinking of getting out of the life that, that escape plan that he's never had. And he's not like, because no attachments, if you feel the heat around you, uh, 30 seconds, you can walk away if you feel the heat around the corner. Um, so it's, I just, um, I, cause I never picked up on that, but I did pick up on these like slow little, these little subtle moments of, of where his headspace was. And, but I mean, subconsciously, I, like, I'm assuming like that all plays to, to the, the emotion con- comes across really and, well. Even if you don't actively see what's going on, the techniques are working. Exa- exactly. And as you described with that coffee shop scene, how subtly they they move in. Yeah, you start lens. wide and you, you get a sense of the space and you feel like you're coming. And then every time they cut around, they get a little bit closer and a little bit closer. Yeah. And by the time you're done, you don't realize it, but you've just been sucked into this really intense conversation that these two uh, essentially opposing unstoppable forces are having with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and the uh and i guess the so the 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 flip side of this though is and this is a technology problem and michael mann and technology to me is an issue because <laughs> <laughs> uh, michael mann always wants to push the bounds of uh his creativity with technology which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't exactly and so there's a shot the first time um so not the first time i guess like the third or fourth time they meet um uh when uh macaulay and Edie. so after the coffee shop where he gets mad at her when she first starts talking to him and then he's like oh i didn't know understand who you were and that your interest is in me romantically and not like not idle. you're trying to break me and yeah find out, you know, or like secrets. idle chit chat which i don't have time for yeah um so now but now he uh, they go back to his place and they're out on his balcony that overlooks la um and that shot has always bugged me and i couldn't figure out why and this time i figured out why uh, but part of it's cause I, uh, so there's no wind in that shot. They're sitting, they're that... like leaning on the railing of his balcony Oh, and yeah, they're having okay. a conversation. For it's... some reason I thought they were on a bench in a park somewhere or something. No, they're, that's at his house. Oh. Like that's the view from his place. Oh. So they're, they're talking to each other and th- cause then they go from there inside and have a steamy right, yes. night together. Um, <laughs> but they're talking and so she's keyed from the house uh so the the pr- presumably the lights on in the in the living room or whatever that's right beside there so that's the key on both him and her as they're looking at each other and then they're f- filled just like the it's as if the warm light has wrapped but it, yeah, yeah. but it, i think it's a secondary light that's doing it because that i don't f- it doesn't feel wrapped it feels like there's a fill light that's warm and yeah. again, it wouldn't be weird necessarily if you're on a hill that the house below you on the hill would have their lights, exterior lights on, and that's where the fill's coming from. But the problem is you don't see that house or that warm light. No, you, you just see, see the, the city in the distance. You see the city in the distance, which is like a green, grungier, urban light. So I thought, like me, if I was to light that, I wouldn't have had that fill be as warm. I would have had it neutral and or had a little bit of that green yellow in it um and then there's no wind and also this is a scene where they like if you took that scene out of that movie you could put it in lethal weapon or miami vice of the 80s like because for the sound design which i thought was pretty good through this whole movie and we'll talk about it uh for some of the uh gunshot sound effects stuff in a bit but the sound design drops out, it seems like, in that you don't hear the city. And maybe he's trying to be like, these two people yeah, are in so, their own world. But like a crappy, like, synthy, ba- like, ballady song comes on. And that kind of overtakes them, except for the dialogue. And then, anyways, and it felt really fake. But then, so I guess why I, it's what always stuck out to me. And then that uh, Michael Mann on the commentary says that was, in fact, a green screen shot but the the stuff on the green screen is really like they set up a camera and they shot the night exterior from that location and then just put it in and then they put but they put it in because he they couldn't light the scene and also see clouds in the sky nighttime clouds in the sky over the city um because of the exposure difference so they shot it separately and put green screens in there and then i don't think they shot i think they would shot that in studio because it's tight enough that you only see the city wrapping around them uh 
so it was all i think it was all green screen so that would explain why you don't feel the environment or feel the wind or feel anything i mean i definitely felt like when i was watching that scene that i had no idea where they were and uh no sense of like context for the world around them uh i mean i would i would say that it may be as far as the light and things go i feel like it might be kind of uh, uh, a preference towards an emotional uh, lighting rather than a realistic lighting because if you add that green sickliness you're you're adding that into this connection they're having that's supposed to be this really happy warm comfortable sort of place um, and the 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 warm happy comfortable thing that is driving him through the whole movie and like the thing that he's working towards um, so arguably, like, uh, not necessarily better or worse, but like, there's an argument to be made that the lighting is entirely for emotional purposes rather than for yeah. And I, I could have been sold that on the day from my boss or whatever. And um, and I wasn't saying that we necessarily needed to incorporate that yellow green color, but I thought it needed to be more neutral than like if your cameras are shooting f- at like tungsten because uh, it would have been filmed back then. So. If you're shooting at stuff rated for 3,200, maybe. Um, so maybe then, so you want to be a little colder. So maybe you're you're got you have quarter O on whatever lights they're fill light or or sorry quarter blue, and or quarter or half blue or something. So you're getting into like the 4,000, 4,400 Kelvin on that side. So it's just so that they're a little bit more moonlighty and nightlighty than it is. Ma- like. Yeah, I guess. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's too cliche. And maybe I'm thinking too book by the book, but it just, I'm, I, it that, feels more that real only came, anyways, more but natural. that only came out of me that, that shot. And I'm talking about like when I didn't know anything about lighting, that shot stood out against everything else. And I never understood why. It's definitely, it's definitely, and, now, and the fact uh, that I know it was shot in an artificial environment, um, yeah. is why, but it, but then, okay. So I guess what I was trying to then do is walk that back. So how would I have done that better to make it feel less, um, less like it was artificial, less standing out and, yeah. and a fan, I honestly would have been a big help. Uh, I mean, if their hair was moving even a little bit, it might have at least felt like more like they were in an environment. Because it does all throughout the rest of the movie. Like it, they in fact later on are sitting out there again, and their hair's moving, and scenes like, um, well, the daytime exteriors down by the pier or, or the the dock, the, yeah. the harbor, everything. Their their hair's blowing around there. Um, when he, when Al Pacino finds the dead prostitute, he's standing in that parking lot and like his hair is blowing at night there even. So all like they, it's there, it, you feel the environment through the whole movie, except for that one shot. And I'm really harping on that only because we have a podcast that we talk about technical stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise it's a, like for me, the cine in this movie is nearly perfect. Um, but I guess we should talk a little bit, maybe, unless you have something about anything more on the cinematography, but we should maybe talk about a bit about the sound design, because they did some radical-y things in this. They did, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm good to go on with that. I didn't have a lot of, like, actual camera stuff to say beyond just how nice I thought the whole thing looked, so... Yeah, yeah. It was it's a gorgeous The score is also to go to sound design for a minute. I really, really liked the score in this. Because it was not what you would expect in any moment. Like it was 
the, the music really fed the emotion well in all the scenes and it really helped kind of guide that sort of feeling to it but none of it was anything that like I heard it and I was like I've heard this before this is exactly what I expected to be here it's so all it felt like super experimental in a lot of places like the all the percussion and like really heavy just like sort of driving rhythms throughout the whole thing so there's a couple there's two music cues apparently that Moby designed there are just yeah, for yeah. this movie one of them is at the end and that's one of the ones that stood out is like this is not what i expected to be here because it's this really like uplifting inspiring sounding sort of like uh synthetic synth song and, and the other one i think is just after he gets out of the helicopter and he starts pursuing them to pull yeah, him over for yeah, the yeah. first time i think that's a moby q that one felt a little more on point because it was like him driving down the highway super fast and it felt like it belonged there more but the, the 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 thought on that last one that I just wanted to to get out there was that it was out of place, but it also wasn't because that is like this climactic sort of moment between what really is the movie's biggest love story, which is between De Niro and Pacino, really. Um, and this is their like their moment where they come together and they climax their little relationship thingy, and he holds his hand as he dies, and it's just so. Yeah, anyways, it, it was very, uh, like, not what you would expect the music to be, but it was so perfect because of it. On the DVD commentary, Michael Mann really talks about, so the, they did have a composer and someone who did the music for this that isn't Moby. Um, uh, he just contributed two pieces, apparently. Um, but uh, he really liked what the composer did at this point um, because it starts out with these subtle kind of romantic, romantic stuff as as uh, Macaulay's coming out of the hotel where he just killed Wengro to go to Edie in the car. And then he, fe- like, almost Sixth Sense feels some eyes on him, looks, sees Pacino, and th- no, thus he starts hear- the chase. No, he hears the... Yeah, but it, I always felt like in the same... I don't know. It, it, there was something about the way he turns that feels instinctual to me a little bit there. Well, yeah, he heard the noise and then looked and could almost kind of, like his abilities and skills told him exactly where people would be hiding and what they were doing. I don't know. Yeah. I, the reason, the reason I, I mentioned that part about the hearing so insistently, I guess, is because I was listening to some interviews where they're the guy who consulted as the technical uh, consultant is a, an officer in the, was he in the LAPD? And it was a detective. Anyways, he was a, a proper cop who spent a lot of his career chasing Neil McCauley a real criminal who did a lot of the things that Neil in this movie does. And one of those things that he did that it stays consistent is that they were watching, watching a store that the guy was going to rob and somebody decided to get up and go to the bathroom and just the movement of crossing the store and everybody, the guys that they were waiting to catch bolted. Yeah. Um, I think the police officer you're referring to was uh, Chuck uh, Adamson. Adamson. Yeah. And I think he was out of Chicago. I think or, yes, it was Chicago. Mo- yeah, most yeah. of his work. Um, that's right. And he shot and killed the real Neil McCauley. Yep. And while picking up his uh, dry cleaning one day, ran into Neil McCauley, and they both recognized each other. And they could have ha- had a shootout. He said right then, but instead he said, "Buy you a cup of coffee," and that inspires the the whole cafe. The whole cafe like, scene. After I listened to him talk about that, I, I was like, part of what makes the story of this so great is how authentic and real all of the h- crime and the like, the people's actions feel. And knowing that it's based on essentially a lot of true events is kind of 
it's it's kind of interesting it's cool to it's cool to think about so um on the i i mean i, I guess i should just finish up with that score yeah, point yeah. i was making is that what michael mann really likes about the score and i never noticed but it, in those moments it's playing slightly like a tragic romantic feeling but that and it kind of holds on a note just as he turns to start to run and that note holds and the music almost transitioned into the a more appropriate for a chase music yeah, and he yeah. was like, he, but it's all in a one piece of music, and so it was. He was like, "This is a great example." Like Michael Mann says, "This is a great example of score." So pe- if people are listening to this that are interested in uh, score and music and what makes good score, that moment is apparently a place <laughs> where, <laughs> according to a big guy, yeah. You know what he's talking uh, about. But uh, but but having re- like paid attention to it after hearing that on the commentary for this. I would have to agree with them. It, I felt that romance, but then I felt quickly like the transition that he left it all, like that 30 seconds dash. Um, yeah, when yeah, he yeah. Around the corner. I, I, uh, all of that was summed up in that, that one musical kind of cue, that transition, which I thought was really cool. Um, but uh, also on that DVD commentary, something that I, I think we're both kind of dancing around that thematically. So... Um, Michael Mann uses the term uh, elevated experience of his life when referring to people doing the thing they like are good at or want to do or whatever is the elevated moment of their life. And he, he goes, this is a common thing. It's uh, athletes and uh, music. And he's like, when people are in the zone that that's you're achieving that elevated experience in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, the crude way is what does it for you? You know what I mean? Like (laughs) what floats your boat, if you will. Yeah. So that, and so, um, and I think that is like a major theme in this movie and, and the Tom Sizemore character, there's that great moment before we're heading into the final, uh, heist that, uh, Tom Sizemore kind of asks Macaulay, like how dangerous is this one going to be? Should I get out? Like I, kind of have a young family you know i'm starting things here yeah neil's like you got like house and stocks and these kind of things you're probably fine don't risk it yeah and he tells him flat out and it's like it's a like a therapist answer like here's what your life looks like this is what makes sense logically and then he responds by going but the action is my is the juice like it's i do it for the i do it for the thrill i do it for the and everyone has a different reason I, i but i and i think uh, the thrill for Neil McCauley, I don't think, comes from the heist like it does for Tom Sizemore. His comes from outsmarting everybody before the heist happens. He, he's a, he's His a, comes a bit from of the a planning. mastermind who gets satisfaction from being smarter than everybody else and getting away with it. And both him and Al Pacino um, love human nature a bit, where they both will... like they both at different times in the movie display the ability to anticipate what the other is going to do just by a few little bits of information about their character. Or, or like um, in, in the same vein too, Pacino's ability to like pick up on that, the guy calling people slick and like that being the literally the only thread that brings him in is that this one word and he manages to make a connection and some fluke chance. And that is the whole reason the movie happens. Yeah. So um, I guess we've kind of transitioned transitioned out of we out should of we should finish the sound technology, conversation. but but with the sound design, especially so, the big shootout, the big final shootout heist of the movie, um, 
so there's a famous story that comes out of it for the sound design for the shots of the, for the gunshots because this movie one of the things it did uh was like famous for was how realistic and how brutal the the and violent the gunshots sounded in this movie and so this was shot on location for real downtown la and they used um and only on saturdays i think right they could only do it saturday, on saturday sunday. sunday maybe so they apparently did it over like three or four weeks where they would come one day on a weekend and shoot and then have to come back the next so, week and every week they would have to reestablish and then tear down this ma- huge massive setup and and they and the other thing they did was um they used full loads so that refers to um when the uh, special effects coordinator makes the blanks or has his team make the blanks, um, they can pack it with a gunpowder and the standard use is like quarter loads. So uh, it's quarter of the impact, therefore quarter of the sound, therefore so crew members don't go deaf shooting shootout scenes, essentially. Um, and the only time I've seen people use even half or real loads is uh, so is maybe for more close-up stuff where you really want to see how much the gun has affected the kickback, that kind of thing. Um, and then the only other time I saw it was on a Steven Seagal thing that he was being a real dick and insisted on it being full loads and all the crew members got really angry because we were in a small location and uh, yes. it was very, very, very loud and unnecessarily so. Um, but this in this he did this for a reason on this thing. He had the uh, the production sound pe- record, uh, people set up lavalier mics all around the location um, at different heights and different areas to the action so that it really had this concrete jungle uh, uh, reflection of sound. The resonance and echo was very um, impactful. It certainly It certainly felt strong when I watched it the first time through how impactful each shot was and how like in the world it felt so um i guess uh, one of the producers was obviously on location that day and then when they first cut this together they were trying to make other effects weren't they so I, the, I heard, the production yeah. the, the post-production audio team removed all of the production audio and re- replaced everything with like foley well not foley but like the the like catalog sound yeah, effects for, for like, gunshots for those who might know and might not know a lot of times with post sound for gunshots that especially in big action movies like this they will like often use howitzers and like other really really heavy shot weapons and layer like four or five different sounds of gunshots on top of each other with like cannons as the base yeah to fill the space and make them feel bigger and it and it's become what we're so used to, like it's movie language for what a gunshot sounds like, that that's what we've come to expect. And so when they showed it to Michael Mann, he lost it right away and was like, "Where? That's not what it sounded like. Where's the sound from the di-? like?" Because and the producer that was apparently in the screening as well instantly knew what Michael Mann was talking about, and he said, "Because the horror of what it sounded like on the day really had everyone." paying attention and and really he said really stuck with kind of all the crew and cast for the rest of their lives i mean i mean i could see that even just having watched it i felt that and um uh the fact that like all of this hard work can go into like these huge sounds to make it 
you know, feel impactful and then they still go back to the original and it's just better in every way is kind of funny to me. Yes, I agree. And but it also I think it has led to like we even talked about going back to Master and Commander with the cannonball stuff. They True. they didn't use on the day on they didn't use their production audio, but they set up multi mics and shot real cannons and they tried to capture what would be authentic audio for it because they felt that was more horrific than these built-up sounds that uh, have been used in most other films. And the other thing I wanted to mention is I heard a number that uh, from the special effects coordinator in one of the the behind-the-scenes featurettes that they used per take. (laughs) They used between 800 and 1,000 rounds. Holy crap. I've worked on like action movies that maybe had that as a budget for the entire thing. I mean, that was all handguns and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but like... <laughs> I guess when you've got seven or eight people shooting fully automatic rifles at each other, you're so, going to fire through rounds. But, like, that's crazy. I mean, presumably, we we know how they shot it. They went there four or five different weekends in a row. So, presumably, they broke, broke this massive thing up. You know, day one would be the exit from the building and the start of the shootout. Uh, another day they would have done the Tom Sizemore, Al Pacino, pick up the kid, stand off, shoot him in the head. Another day would have been uh, the middle of the street. The Val Kilmer like, yeah. pr- progressing down the street and getting and maybe they probably did that one in two chunks, actually, because he ends up getting shot and, and, and then Macaulay be, goes yeah. back for him, which is. Again, something you're never supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. He breaks a lot of his own rules in this, He sure he? does. Um, but again, I think it goes to mindset of if this was five years earlier in his life, he wouldn't have broken any of those rules and they would have got away. It also feels like they have this sort of, and it's it's maybe kind of a, a cliche now of these type of movies, but like this sort of... Um, code of thieves kind of thing you know they they have they have their own sense of like moral code and and behaviors and like they're apparently supposed to be a crew that's worked together a lot so like it seems as though val Val kilmer's character and and uh macaulay has have like a tighter friendship than maybe he yeah and there's the standard like again like you're saying with not just this but westerns anytime there's a a gang or or like the anti-hero gang there's the alpha and the beta and there's the quiet beta guy and that's who he is in this movie yeah yeah he's the the ringo from uh from tombstone or whatever oh yeah yeah um i'll be your huckleberry uh (laughs) but yeah this so and then, so I guess the final on the, uh, for final, uh, like sound design, I think again, to repeat was great. I think through most of this, uh, there's a few issues where I thought the music overpowered some scenes and things like that. But for the most part, I, I really liked how raw and real it felt. Um, and I, and I think part of that, uh, not to just the sound, I guess, but, but to like the, the production of things like the, the training that everybody went through. I was seeing there was some stuff they're talking about where like like in they would build these sort of gun range sets that were catered and built to be the same movement and sort of targets and things that they were going to have in the real on the day and then they would shoot live rounds at these targets and train how to properly move and carry guns and like how to get through the space so that when they finally got there they had already done it so many times that it was like almost second nature again. They are proud of this fact because they mentioned it in numerous uh, interviews and behind the scenes stuff. But um, 
at Fort Bragg or something in the United States or one of these, uh, maybe in multiple ones, but for some reason I remember that name being mentioned. Uh, they show the clip of Val Kilmer firing, reloading, and then it's essentially like this is this is the bare minimum. This is as quick. If you can't do it this fast, get, get out, out of my of our, unit or, or whatever. Army, yeah. <laughs> if you can't uh, reload as fast as Val Kilmer can, you don't belong here. Because it's it's uh, by the book perfect, um, essentially. So they they want that or better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a testament to how much work and time went in in pre production to just like constructing this functional real environment and on the audio commentary michael mann even mentions that feature you mentioned that showed the behind the scenes with the they rebuilt that street and stuff and he was like those are metal targets and he's like when robert de niro's doing it watch how many drop like he hits most of them um so these guys trained for i think it was they started three months before shoot principal photography so they had upwards of three months probably not the whole time but on and off where they were training for this thing and they got very very proficient and to the point that it ruins it in other movies when i see sloppy work yeah. with with like especially when it's the big actors the one where in their head they're probably thinking oh this will play in a close-up so i don't really need to know what my hands should be doing yeah um but this movie was really, really cool. And I think it felt more like all of these characters felt real because they could really do a lot of the things they were. Re well, in fact, um, the guy who was consulting as like the bank robbery guy who had in his past life robbed banks and stuff, the final heist, they did that. Didn't they, they case it? They, they went to a bank and actually he, cased for, it? For an exercise with him. He got them to case that real bank. And then they went back after, right? And they like talked to the, yeah. the bank owner or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I didn't even know you were there. It, and so they got away with it in the same way you would really case it. So he was like, so on the day when they did it, the, the confidence and everything that they were doing it with was built because they had actually done it. Even only yeah, it was once. Yeah. So I think they did a lot of, and that goes to the technical side of filmmaking because that this prep work that they did is really, really important and really, really shows. And and with the stunts as well, too. There's a lot of really impressive stunts and special effects. Um, I mean, like the shot where they're blowing open the back of the armored car with a shape charge and all of the car windows just pop at the same time was super fun to watch as well. And it looked really good. Yeah. And then I guess finally, the only on the technical side, the other shout out, if I gave one earlier to the location manager, should be to the... Um, uh, to the casting director because as you yeah. said um, if you're in this movie and you're you're now not like a semi-famous <laughs> working actor for shame because <laughs> everybody like the smallest role if you uh, sorry I should add if you speak a line yes um, because uh, I mean Jeremy Piven with his with his 90s hairline before he changed it <laughs> uh shows up as the doctor and like you said william uh, fickner and um you know uh, uh what's i mean his... i don't know where dennis haysbert was at in his career at the point that this he did is this er movie this is early obviously because he does some bigger shows and stuff afterwards yeah i mean um, but he, he has he a pretty still... big role in 24 yeah i was gonna say that's that was his breakout yeah yeah was but in this movie his performance and like the stuff he, like it's it's like a side plot that's something i guess i wanted to talk about with like Same. the web of side plots that kind of so but he's he like really powerful character st like study there essentially because his he's the his story until 
the uh, anti-climax, like so just before the climax, until that moment, his story doesn't intersect with either Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. Other than I guess they know them from past, but you don't know that. But you don't know that. But so it's the only story that's told to us that we don't see has a direct impact on those other. So it, it stands out as unique in the movie. And then, and you're just getting these little vignettes, him and his sister and all that stuff or whatever. And, um, I, sister, I thought it was, sorry, your girlfriend or whatever, but, um, family, whatever person that cares about him. Loved one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, but, uh, you see these little things and, and, and obviously, and you see this and it's making us like, it's inserting a small, uh, storyline to insert the social commentary of like how difficult prison reform and all that stuff is and how it really doesn't work. And if, yeah, because if you don't help them once they get out the, anyway, um, but all of that stuff. So, uh, um, John Voight is in, yeah, yeah. Shows up in this. And the guy who plays Kelso, uh, who is the guy who plans the crimes that, um, is in the wheelchair. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he has the beard and he's like, he, I recognize his face from a bunch of TV. I don't know his name and I didn't end up looking it up. Um, but um, he like, he's a famous, like everybody. And like you said, the, the dot, the daughter who has like five scenes in the movie, uh, Al Pacino's stepdaughter. And this is Natalie Portman and Tom Noonan, by the way, Tom Noonan. He's excellent. And I, and he, um, I mean, also for, on the Natalie Portman thing, this is like really early because she's she's very young in this. I would have thought she had done Leon the Professional before this, but this might have been before that. I I, I don't I don't know much of her early stuff to be. Perfectly yeah, honest, so, but, but the, I mean, this is growing up. I knew or by the time she was getting Princess Amidala or whatever roles in Star Wars, I, yeah. I knew who she was because of this and because of Leon and, and some of her earlier work. And she. I think she has a movie with Susan Sarandon pretty early on too that um, she plays. She's like ten or eleven in. Um, and her performance in this, like the two scenes she has where she has performance, are really, really good. And that's another thing that uh, we didn't get into talking in technical because it's it was it's more story related. But as we're transitioning to that part, I, I wanted to get into it. But it, I think. With the camera work and with the with the dialogue and everything, they do a very very good job of giving full arcs to minor characters in in this movie. And I remember when I was a kid and I watched it, that storyline didn't feel right to me or real or something. But then as you get older and understand the nuance of like um, broken homes and stuff from other depictions and uh, and you know people come friends of mine whatever. Um, you know, so she's, her real dad is, is an absent father and misses picking her up and all this. And then as she has this new father figure in her life, and even if he's a little rough around the edges, he seems to care about her. He pulls over when he sees her by herself on the side of the road, he pulls over and all these little moments and all this little things. And then I would argue like he seems to care, but there was something I noted in my notes anyways, is that he rags on the absent father a lot, but he himself is a pretty absent father. Oh no, for sure. And, I, but I think he knows that, but I also think he lets himself off the hook in those situations by he's saying fighting bad guys. Well, that, and that he's like, it's my step da- oh, daughter. Yeah, and I think he's a, 
you know, and I think he's a jerk enough that that would be kind of something that goes through his head. But I, I don't mean that he is doing the job. I mean, she thinks he's doing the job. Right. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, what's that? Uh, it, it, um, a few drops of water to a man dying of thirst is whatever. Uh, like, it's it's that. Like, where she's getting nothing. So even the slightest contact is something. And then... Cause I, seeking attention for sure. Because her suicide attempt never made sense to me. Or didn't make sense to me until I was, like, in my mid-20s. Yeah. And I was like, oh, so this is her, like, she's so, the father figures in her life are so absent that the, 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 at the chance of losing somebody else in her life that's filling that role, even as badly as Al Pacino's character is, she then, because she goes to his hotel room. I, I mean, this might sound awful, but I'm going to say it. We'll see if it comes out as badly as it sounds in my head. But, like, it feels almost like we're set up because she's telling her mom, like, pay attention at the beginning, like, like being loud and, and, and trying to draw the attention from people who are not um, giving her what she needs in her, you know, raising. Um, so there's almost this sense of, like, on one hand, she comes to him because as a sign that like, yeah, he's doing a better job, but also as like a little bit of like, uh, maybe he'll notice me if I'm in his hotel room No, in I, the bathtub covered in blood. I know. I, I think that's exactly it, but it's also, um, it's also, this will, this can keep mom and new mom oh, and new dad together oh, in yeah. my head right it's like and that that isn't to like lower the um the whole suicide part of it because that is still what she's doing and clearly it's it's yeah no but so it, it, but often when kids that young try uh, attempt at suicide it's very it's i think it's less the reasons that adults like that are at the end of the rope commit suicide it is a, like it, they're at the end of the rope but they're at the end of the rope because the the guidance figures in their life are are absent abs- or, absent yeah. at such a degree that they're this is their extreme scream for help yeah and and uh and i mean i, I like this is only for, again from pseudo knowledge based on conversations and things i've heard over the years so but this is the the and um uh but uh, also michael mann says something similar to this on the dvd oh does so, it? okay so okay. It, in his intention that's what she she's this is a this is a plea to pacino okay, okay. not to leave his uh, the mom to like and yet he still does to, anyways well <laughs> th- he's already left her at that point but but then after after when they're in the hospital she's like can we make his, the, the wife is like yeah. can we make this work and he's like no you know this isn't gonna work well no but i, I think, am who i am and i will never change but i think that's i think that's to like i think they both love each other like oh, i think this sure, is an example do. of the, like a relationship where two characters love each other but there's the lines uh, whenever she says um when uh so after they have the party so the the cop party with the wives at that fancy restaurant and then he gets the call to go to the prostitute that was killed and the hands were removed and all that and then he stops the family member of the prostitute getting to them and hugs them but like 
he's providing them comfort in the same way a pillow would like there's no soul yeah yeah i definitely felt there like he didn't really know what or how to comfort them or and it felt more like he was like well i'm stopping you from getting close and now we're hugging so i guess i'll try and help you somehow this is awkward but i think it's retrospectively explained in the next scene because he goes back and everybody else has gone home but his wife has stayed and then they have in that conversation he he says how he like he doesn't want to share his day with her. And then he describes some horrific scene with a, a junkie, a baby in a microwave. Yeah. And, and says, is that what you want to hear? You want to hear like, and he's like, and what me telling you that will somehow make that go away through catharsis. <laughs> and he's like, it doesn't work like that. He's like, and I, and he goes, and then I, and he says, I need to hold on to that. Cause that's I what need makes my me, angst. That's what makes me sharp. So, Unlike unlike Neil, who is more like is a, like a more of a sociopath, although he's warm to certain people in his life or whatever, the uh, the Pacino character really seems to take on board a lot of this, a lot of the emotional pain of the world that he's living in. Neil intentionally has created a, a system by which he doesn't feel it, and Pacino. Um, Pacino Vincent Hanna, yeah, is his name. Yes, uh, intentionally absorbs it and And, uses it and uses it as as fuel for what he does and then and essentially i think that is the primary difference between the two characters so in in neil uh macaulay's world the stakes are life and death right you make a mistake and you're either going to jail or you're dying whereas in in uh vincent hannah's world uh while life and death is an, is a is a possibility or death uh, rather is a possibility for a police officer or a detective uh it's certainly less of a possibility well there was something in the by that chicago by chuck adamson saying that like uh assaulting the police is not something that happens you know for, about that bank scene where yeah. they don't generally have people with assault rifles shooting back at them so they're not used to that right so exa- and exactly and it and the thing is so that's my point is that he he can have a messier personal life or he has a messier personal life for a couple of reasons he has a personal life one cuz he's he isn't in the world of life or death stakes he doesn't have to pick up and run he doesn't have so he can lay down roots he can be more comfortable um and then it's as messy as it is because of how uh hooked on the adrenaline of chasing of being a predator of hunting prey because his, and his prey is bad people thankfully uh, <laughs> yep. Uh, be, because like, and so everything he does is all about. Well, it, it's in a in a similar way, um, except he has the emotional component turned way up on on his side of things. And then I read it. So in a twenty year or fifteen year or ten year anniversary of this movie, I forget which. Al Pacino. Someone finally asked him like why he was so big in his part. And he claimed that there was in earlier drafts or at least maybe even like the draft that went to screen, his character had a coca- cocaine addiction. And uh, and it and it makes more sense. So Macaulay is like a little like he ha- you see him drink, but for the most part, he's straight laced in this. He's not teetotal, but he's like pretty straight laced because he he needs to keep his wits about him for his his side of things his sharpness is his like his on point intelligent reactiveness that whereas 
um, Hannah, who's emotionally absorbing this stuff for the fuel that he needs to maintain this his sharpness, that takes such a toll on him. He needs to dull his life and dull that pain by taking uppers and downers. It it also makes sense as to his his emotional engagement with people around him too, because like if if you're getting high all the time you're not gonna be like it it's going to cause you to like distance and emotionally separate from the people around you just because of like what it does to you anyways and and uh and with the when he's interviewing criminals is when he really goes off like is the most erratic behavior we see is when he's uh interviewing suspects or, or criminals or trying to get something out of his ci's or or hank azaria's character um and those um, in those moments, though, that is a bit out of research because uh, Michael Mann, who Dennis Farina, do you know the actor Dennis? Yeah. Or oh, of course you do. He was in Snatch. We did in Snatch. Yeah, we talked about uh, so that. So Dennis Farina he was, was also a, a cop, wasn't he? In he Chicago? was a Chicago cop. Yeah, so yeah. he knows Chuck and he knows Michael Mann and he was another guy. And he, he would describe that in these interviews with, with CIs especially, he's like, every CI is going to lie to you. Uh, it's just a matter of when and how big the lie is so he was like so in the, in order to keep that and make it a smaller lie and at a less critical time you keep them uh uncomfortable at all times so that they constantly know you are a threat to their freedom or whatever and so you in interviewing them you do erratic weird things you do intimidation tactics you do things anything that takes them out of their norms so that they're in an uncomfortable position so that you can and then they also might be more willing to tell you information or whatever Or at the very least their lie might be easier to see through because they're not as like settled in themselves yeah so that explains it but the cocaine also well <laughs> yeah explain. also that because <laughs> uh, uh, she's got a great ass <laughs> and your head's right up. uh there's so many classic lines that have come like yeah. me and my friends there's a lot of the, the action is the juice is a big line that me and my friends said to each other a lot yeah, uh yeah. and but uh she's got a great ass <laughs> in your best pacino is probably a close second that we like you use it in a mocking like uh you use it it was never used as like a you would actually see a woman and say that type of thing it was always like yeah 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 <laughs> it's yeah it's pretty it's got a lot of great moments like that for sure yeah and it's uh, um and it's a real uh real subtle scene studies are the, like real subtlety in characters what you should be looking at cuz cuz as we talked about even with Natalie Portman every character has that type of arc and therefore the each scene because there are so many external characters is packed with so much extra stuff because they're getting all their story into it it's well and and i mean that's probably why the movie ends up being three hours but uh one of the things that really impressed me about that is that you have all these threads because you've got the main story which is uh vincent hannah is hunting neil mccauley but then outside of that you've got like other relationships that all get their own time within that main group that are like kind of their own side stories in a way a little bit like chris's deal um, and then you've got the Dennis Haysbert guy in the cafe or the diner thing. And then you've got, and all of these little stories at the beginning are just like this disparate sort of thread pile of threads that by the time you get to the end felt really well woven together that like you could go back and be like, Oh, this all actually does connect in this like intricate way. Yeah. And it, and 
And uh, a friend of mine who doesn't like this movie as much as me always used to complain in the same way you brought it up earlier that the slick, the whole that that being the only connection that ends up causing this whole thing to fall apart. I don't see how that's a problem. Well, because to him, he was like, what a stupid like uh piece of evidence to follow and and just because of like how how much how much that could that have been just happenstance that another person gets called like slick isn't that uncommon of a nickname to throw out and all this stuff. i mean sure but like when you have a known criminal who's just gotten out of jail in your town yeah who's known for saying that and you also have a lead from this guy who says that if he's talking about stuff he's busy like it wouldn't hold up in court to be like, this guy said slick. It was them that did it. But like that seems to me like a really realistic thread to at least begin to find someone to follow. That that was my point, as was when Pacino first says it. He goes, you're going to get the phone book, but maybe some, there's something there. Yeah, yeah. And they, there is nothing there until he meets with his CI-CI. <laughs> and, uh, oh, by the way, um, I watched a couple of reactions to this movie. One of the ones was from the Ringer podcast in their show, The Rewatchables. And they mentioned that song that's played in that scene. It's by it's Jump Around by House of Pain. Which Wait, is really? A, a band by from Boston. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and they had mentioned, and I totally agree with them that if there's something to change, it's there's so much good LA hip hop or, you know, like West Coast hip hop that that shouldn't be a band from Boston. In anyway. Yeah, I mean, I feel uh, like maybe that's just a like, oh, this. I it was a, get it was this a, in there. It was probably a clearance thing, and yeah, oh, or yeah, probably, yeah. like because that song would have been out for maybe six years by then or something and, and cheaper to uh, cheaper to pay for or something. yeah or maybe maybe it wouldn't have been out that long maybe only three years either way yeah it might have been cheaper also it would maybe was more pg or more recognizable to like white suburban audience in 1995 like that sounds like accessible hip-hop compared to fair i don't really know much about the scene to... doesn't matter but uh yeah anyway uh but uh, that's CICI, yeah, and and again, and uh, on the DVD commentary, Michael Mann says something very interesting about that scene, which is um, he wanted Pacino, they had, him and Pacino had a long discussion, as he describes it, about how Pacino is going to play hearing the word slick and returning to the table as it was scripted. And Michael Mann wanted him to play like a hear it, take it in, digest it and then like understand oh slick and turn back around and pacino as it, it had a different take which is the one we see in the movie which as soon as the of slick comes out he like his his arm turns and then his body follows and he's back in the table that and sharpness and cocaine energy <laughs> well it was that but it, he was like it's almost that the way his that guy's that character's brain works he has all this information rattling around and it's like uh he heard it's like a it's a trigger it's that like draws an it out. like well an algorithm that pops out he hears a <laughs> word that he's like boop it triggers something that he and he's sitting down before he even realizes why he's back at the table right slick and then starts talking about it kind of thing that's kind of cool and he plays it very he said like it was like a natural reaction like a like getting your knee tapped at the doctor or whatever he's such a good detective and so established and well set and been in it for so long that he just automatically does the right thing in those situations without really realizing it yeah and and to go to character again um with his 
messy personal life and this is a bit of a tangent but i just thought of it but like if this heist would have been pulled off if that if all this slick thing didn't and they they get this last i guess they would have got the the other thing before it that they they stopped the robbery mid robbery and yeah uh so there would have been that one and then maybe this one but if he did if hannah did walk away and take Edie with or uh sorry if uh uh, neil uh walked away with and took Edie with them and they went to some desert island or whatever new zealand i think they were saying yeah whatever yeah Uh, in my head there's uh, you're always with coconuts on a beach of course (laughs) that's what you do when you run away and retire (laughs) uh so um but like if um if that's the case in a weird way he could have had a better personal life in the end than pacino uh, uh, hannah ever will because hannah as we know is because he's so obsessed and his job until he retires there's no end point kind of thing so he's there's he may never have that and and the way his character is set up in this thing, he's he's gonna die on the job, kind of like yeah, yeah. He's never gonna retire. Well, and and you can kind of get like I, like even if you're in a job you love, I think everybody knows how it feels to just like stop for a second and be like, where's the end to all of this? You know, like it just feels like it keeps going sometimes. Yeah, and so it's interesting to me that that the law the one on the side of the law may never be able to have a comfortable personal life, whereas the criminal may be able to. And it's a theme that comes up in a lot of cops and robbers movies and shows and stuff like that. The, that de- the, the devotion to doing good is, is a more long-term and difficult road than the road of doing bad. Well, and even in like, even in breaking bad, which was like in a way has a lot of is, is this story kind of played out between, uh, between Hank and and uh, Brian Cranston or whatever, and uh, and in that one, as Brian Cranston's character starts making more and more money, uh, you know they're able to like do little upgrades on their house and stuff like this. And I think even at one point they financially help out. It's the sister-in-law that so and things like that. So in that world, the 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 cop is living less comfortable than the criminal, and and. It's, and you know same within the sopranos like they're in mansions and the the criminals are always shown to have this like comfortable more comfortable potentially life uh and then the cops are always cursed to have this like alcohol infused lonely existence i i wonder if that's it's interesting because it it sort of at the same time glorifies and also sort of criticizes that kind of life of like because they're doing something that is important and good work and needs to be done and they're keeping people safe and whatever else. But at the same time, it's sort of like also not exactly presenting the best side of it either. Well, Michael Mann says that like the protect and serve aspect of uh, Al Pacino's character would be what he tells people is the reason. Yeah, he does it's it. not why he's doing but it. But it's not why he does no. it. He does he, it for the, like because he like he gets off. On it's his excuse with his chick. wife. Where yeah. like I'm not around because I'm doing this important work and protecting people and be. But really, what he's doing is riding around in a helicopter looking for a, a money thief. And he may, uh, he may, you know, uh, lie to himself. So in it, oh, it I'm might, sure he does. He might not. In his heart of hearts, he may believe that he's doing it for all the right reasons, but we know through his actions and through what this movie's told us that 
that's, that's not, not the, the case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, but also this movie because of the rules of uh that Neil's uh character lives by. While his the location of his home is beautiful, uh, he only has four plates. He has four like no glasses, furniture. Yeah, no furniture. He lives a minimalist life because he needs to be able to get up. Because and he leave. needs to get be able to leave exactly, and and also. If you are are going to leave it, why? What's the point of buying even furniture if you don't care to take it? What's you might as well point? just keep the money in yeah. your bank account and use it to have that un- nice un- coconut on a beach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I I just I thought, and so that goes back to set design and stuff. But that first, um, I guess it's not the first. The first thing we see of him in his own place is that shot we discussed. That's in the blue environment, and then the next time we see it, it's at night when Edie's there. Oh, then, oh, Chris, and but when Chris wakes up there in the morning, that's after, before Edie. I think, oh, is right? it? Yeah, it might be. Yeah, you're right. Oh, I can't remember. But either way, that so we see he's got like a well, everything was cord phones back then, but like well, he's yeah. got a cord phone, but it's a crappy one that would be like it wasn't a fancy one with like a display yeah, kind screen of a, or anything. A shitty little table that's not like super it, exactly. And then the cupboards you see are glass over his head, but it's he's only got four plates, four wine glasses, <laughs> four everything. Yeah. And that so it's like he bought one set of dishes, put it in the cupboard or whatever and that's it. And then yeah, and then Chris is on the floor because he and there's a futon maybe or a couch futon. I don't even remember seeing a couch. Like I it's think very... I saw one armchair maybe in there. Yeah. And so there's nowhere for him to sleep except the floor. It's just it's I don't know. I just it it's really really interesting like subtle hints to character that they don't say much other than the one throwaway line of like you need to get more furniture uh or when are you gonna get more furniture and he's like you know anyways but like it just really good character development happening just in that set deck alone yeah and i i thought of this movie um because it's subtle in a lot of its approach to character development it also becomes really efficient um because it has to fit so much stuff in to each scene so there's even that really interesting scene later when they're trying to sell the bearer bonds and it's setting up the whole thing with William Fickner. And he's, so I think he's on the phone. Is it when he's on the phone with William Fickner for the first time and he's on a pay phone and he's just, but he, he keeps because he has to hang up and they call him back and all that kind of thing. So he, you see him looking around and it, at first, when I first watched it, I, I remember thinking, oh, he's suspicious because of he's just a suspicious yeah, guy. Yeah, well, I also was nature. like, is he suspicious because he thinks Fickner's going to, you know. And then you realize something. he's on a. And then as the that part of the scene ends, you realize, oh, no, he's actually looking around because he's staking out the hotel. Because that, like, he turns around and that's when he's at the hotel and you see Hank Azaria leaving. So the phone he's using is the one outside of that hotel. I okay, so I have I do have a question about that because I didn't read that as intentional in some ways. Like maybe he saw her go there and so he was actually staking it out, but I kind of thought that he went there for the payphone specifically because they're always making the payphone calls so they're not getting traced. And then it just see, oh. maybe coincidentally happens to happen, but like it would be, I guess, weird that it was in, that coincidental. In his character, yeah, because of how we see him turn the ta- like turn tails on the cops and ca- like 
surveil them later and all that stuff i just no, it has it was... to be in, no you're right i think it has to be and he's there intentionally and he is staking yeah no i think you're right there. and i think his motivation to go stake her or to follow her comes from that phone call from when because she's like i don't care i don't want him back and all that stuff and he's like okay there's an but issue they don't say there that in the phone call on the phone call she's pretty like he can stay there for i like her oh yeah or something okay, yeah, like yeah. she he can tell there's unrest in their yeah. relationship from and that then phone and call. then he asks if there's something on the side and, and he's like no she's got nothing and he's like are you sure and he's like yeah i'm sure she's got nothing on the that's side. that's right so then i and i think he's like huh well if you're not making her happy a woman like that would probably find something or so, like i don't know i'm just guessing to hit the what's going on what his, his brain is thinking yeah and uh and i just thought it was cool because it it i've now in my viewings once i once I saw it the first time, I've always interpreted it his looking around in the earlier parts on the phone as suspicion. Yeah. Well, no, as well, yes, but also to a make sure they aren't seeing him or catching him, but also because he's keeping an eye on that door. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just uh, a little, and and it happens throughout. There's lots of little like little moments between characters that inform you about both characters the john voight when john voight later is giving him the file on hannah in the car and he's talking to him and john voight makes that really cool um he like ex extrapolates he's like it's his third wife he, and, he does like a psychological reading of him based on his like minimal profile yeah and i which think it was really cool and uh, and uh, and the fact that then you know that's the type of detail neil does into these people catching him it also it also draws a connection between neil and and hannah because that's the kind of profiling that the police do to figure out how, how criminals are going to behave so in the same way the criminals are doing that to figure out how the cops are going to behave so it draws this this interesting line between them there and also really sets up how good and how professional these guys are that like they're not just some crew taking whatever score shows up they're methodical you know well and uh, i think this was something if i interpreted uh michael mann right that um the real mcnulty did which was if he felt the heat he would then surveil whoever was on his tail because he the way he would react to the heat on him would depend on which organization was after him Oh, so if okay. it was the Chicago Police Department, that was one thing. If it was some suburban Chicago Police Department, that was like a small thing. He would react different. If it was the FBI or whatever, then it would be a whole different reaction. And so that's what apparently informed uh, the De Niro's that, character yeah, doing yeah. that in this. And I think that's that would be the level you would need to be if you want to do that. If you wanted to make it for yeah. a long time, yeah. One thing I wanted to touch a little bit on thematically, now that we've gotten a lot of in-depth detail about that, I did I did want to kind of mention that I there's this really interesting sort of dynamic with these two main characters that to me felt like an interesting criticism because and and it, it, it like eighties and and nineties were full of like movies like lethal weapon and Die Hard and like these like macho hyper masculine action heroes and cop heroes doing like you know they're not really obeying the law but they're fighting for the good guys and so you let them loose and whatever but they do shitty things to the people around them and treat people poorly um and that was very much prominent in this movie and 
the first time I was watching through, I there was a little bit of like this reaction in my brain where I was like, these people are making me really uncomfortable with how they how they are, and I was trying to like interpret what the movie was was thinking and saying about the characters and. And my proposal comes down to, I think that this both obviously, like, exemplifies that kind of role, but it takes it in this realistic sort of way where it's almost criticizing and critiquing this trope that had appeared of, like, really hyper-masculine, like, action heroes who, at the end, win and get what they want because they're the good guys and it like sort of affirms what they're doing but this movie doesn't it like both of the like the guys at least the cop kind of gets what he wants in the end but um but Hannah doesn't have a great life and his behavior is never like you know approved of but like it, it I don't know it seemed like a really interesting sort of critique of that type of character yeah it's almost and and going back to like catching criminals being hannah's fix or whatever that moment he it almost seems like the fix is done as soon as he fires the gun and then there's that like ennui after the fact where like he's no longer high and he like and and he just sort of stands there quietly well he's like sober to the moment and somber and then all of a sudden like you know what i mean he's taken another man's life whether you're like he's a bad person who's also killed because again you watched him massacre police like yeah well but you also see hannah's like high levels of respect for the guy like he's always talking them up you can tell that he like if the dude wasn't a criminal they'd probably be best friends kind of you know like they're they're very similar they 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 have this weird sort of love relationship in a way that's like you know unrequited like friendship of some sort so I'm going to reference it again, but the commentary with Michael Mann, and it's because he's the guy who wrote and created this world. So uh, I think his opinion matters, but he, he was saying that in his private thoughts of that final moment, um, he said it was, he, it was an understanding between the two men that they are the most alike humans in the universe of this film. They are the two most alike beings that they are aware of, that are aware of themselves, um, because they he thinks they have a, acute self awareness as well as external awareness. I mean, you definitely get the sense that that Hannah knows exactly what his problems are and what it's doing to the people around him, and is just choosing to continue to live that life anyways. And it, but it's the attraction of these two men is the. Uh, recognition in their opposite number of the similarities to themselves and they have felt potentially um, ostracized from the rest of the groups all their life because of their unique mindset and then they found he he's founded in his foil their opposite number yeah, there, yeah. which i think is it's beautiful and goes to everything we've been kind of saying yeah, about yeah, these, really... that it's it is that fine line between and and I mean I guess we should maybe talk about that last um, that last showdown scene a little bit and and because um, I mean it's a big long chase they're running through a lot of different places and and that part's all really good the music is really driving and and everything but really it comes down to when they're at those buildings those outbuildings at the end of the runway. And I, I heard somewhere that they were talking about, like, every day Michael would go and check these buildings that they put out and be like, oh, that needs to be three inches this way or two inches that way. And it was, like, constantly shifting a little bit every time to just, like, make it this perfect set for this showdown that they go to. And then the whole way through, just, like, the the, the film language tension building is just 
flawless like the the cuts here the cuts there, always being kind of nice and tight except for like a few shots where you don't know where anybody is and there's just like shadows and things and like drawing it out as he's coming out of cover and you know you know where um um neil is and you know that he's waiting for him to come around that corner so when he does and you're in that wide and you can't see him you're like oh is he gonna get him without also making it too long and then getting kind of bothered by it because i find sometimes people do it for too long and then you're like okay this is no longer tense this is just annoying but it was like this perfect balance i really i think from the moment he runs away from the car i i I have no idea i didn't time it or anything but it felt like five minutes till they're clasping hands kind of thing that that seems in my head about kind of right and that and that for a climax of a film of this nature probably is more than enough is or is enough time if not yeah, they could yeah. have maybe gone a little longer um but yeah i so i have a so when we get to those final outbuildings um the big gag in that scene is that uh neil notices that as a plane comes in the lights get bright and then he stays hidden and then he's watching a plane come in as he's also keeping an eye on where hannah's walking hannah kind of exits into an open space as a plane goes over his head, uh, which illuminates the runway behind Neil. Which, which gives him the view he needs to shoot him. To shoot him see. so he can now see him and somewhat like uh, like maybe in a way to stun him or something, the bright lights come on. Neil steps out, but of course what he thought was an advantage is now a disadvantage because those lights are pr- providing a shadow from his body and then which an, by the way it's a smart move on his part to use the lights that's i mean if i was ever in that situation i would have probably thought the same thing like yeah. oh, this is perfect i'm hidden in the light not being revealed by it yeah no um yeah uh, i i mean i would think lights behind me would cast my shadow that way but Fair also enough. i i guess i would think that um that i that i will be in silhouette and harder to see yeah. when he turns it, it walking around at night his eyes are accustomed to that it's turning into a, a series of bright lights would potentially blind him but he doesn't he he reacts so quickly he i don't think he aims i don't think he locates no his target he and just aims. turns and shoots he just turns towards the yeah towards the shadow and but shoots. that does suggest then that he i mean you have to assume it's neil because that's the only other person there but like theoretically it could have been an airport guy absolutely could have been could have been anybody he just turned <laughs> yeah. shot into the blinding lights <laughs> yeah. and I, was I, able to land his shot i love the idea that this movie ends with hannah killing some random <laughs> like airport employee and and, and neil, neil is getting on the away plane yeah, <laughs> neil getting away because of all the paperwork and everything that he'll be tied up in but uh <laughs> yeah you're you're right i never thought about the consequences of that but i mean of course uh you would, it's 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 got to be the way it is yeah um and i but it, it ends i think it i think this is it's a very somber ending, and the movies you mentioned earlier, uh, both Die Hard and and um, and Lethal Weapon, all three all three of those movies, including this one, take place in L.A. And, oh, that's true. Yeah, and um, I think there's also something to there's a theme in a lot of L.A. movies that this warm, beautiful place is has a cold heart, and uh, there's this this whole like. Uh, and I think it's you a see concrete it. jungle, man. Yeah, but but I think it's and then if the movie is ending on a happy note, then you're ending with like 
a sunset as the camera pulls away from happy chatter or whatever. But how does this movie end? Well, it ends with like, uh, it ends in a night scene, nowhere near a beat. Like there's two people, one of them's dead. Yeah. And And there's just this really hard, hard airport lighting light silhouetting them. Yeah. And I, and, and I, and I, but I think it's that, that darkness and that loneliness that is this like overall theme isolation and of what, but of, of also what the setting is like LA is this cold, lonely place um with warm beautiful temperatures <laughs> uh or or so so movies like would this lead would, you have, to believe, would yes. have us believe exactly and uh yeah and i but i think it's uh thematically really sh- a really like strong bow on for for the for the things this movie was saying yeah yeah 100 percent. oh i i do have a, a couple other um little kind of fun facts that Ooh. came out of the commentary that i thought played the character and interesting stuff so the after um edie and neil hook up the first time uh he leaves her in his bed in the morning and and leaves but he brings her a glass of water and it has this napkin uh folded around the glass and it like going up the side of the glass and in a and that was something apparently michael mann picked up when he had done a bunch of he shot something, but also did a bunch of research uh, with prisoners. Specifically, he sh- shot something in Folsom Prison. Oh. Um, and uh, he was saying that, and and I'm paraphrasing, but it, I, I just... Um, so when he was doing research at Folsom, uh, he was saying that uh, when humans are deprived of human connection and expression, they'll take any opportunity to insert creativity and expression to an otherwise mundane stuff is how he viewed it is like it was his takeaway and it was something he saw a prisoner doing was doing this origami with his napkin around his glass slightly making his glass look different to all the other glasses around but also just something creative a small little outlet something to express himself and uh so in his head this like this character having been to prison earlier in his life and being traumatized by it to the point i'm never going back kind of thing yeah yeah um he would have picked up something like this but has continued in his real life but it's also how a somewhat cold like for a cold character that is a mat like it was a big gesture like he's done something nice for this character and shared it with them and it's a very a very quiet gesture but like if you're paying attention to it it's uh it it means a lot more than the screen time it gets yeah 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 um and in the uh from that ringer podcast they mentioned this but it's also something that me and my friends used to joke about but that um this is one of those movies that des- describes the internet that to people that don't know what the internet is yet and uh, it's again with the Kelso character. So De Niro, he's oh, telling him all the things. Yeah. And De Niro <laughs> says, how'd you get this information? And he says something along the lines of, uh, uh, it comes to you. Fly- it's flying in the air. It's all around us. <laughs> you uh, just have to know how to grab it. It's just beamed out all over the place. You just have to, yeah, you have to know how to grab it. And uh, And so he's describing, like he just, he was on the internet and found this information, <laughs> but he's talking to a person who has no idea what the internet is. Cause it's 1995. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. um, that's, that's pretty that, funny. That's funny. That's yeah. Funny. But, um, yeah. Uh, for the most part, I think I've said everything we were, I was trying to say about story and technical stuff about this movie. Um, 
Did you have anything? No, I think I think we touched a lot of what I wanted to get to, pretty much all of it. So Okay, cool. So is this a movie um, that you think in the future you'll find yourself revisiting to watch again? Oh, yeah, I'm sure I will. Um, I watched it twice for this, which is six hours of time already, but um, uh, I will probably come back to it. It's long enough and, and whatnot that like it's probably not going to be a... Probably wouldn't be a like all the time rewatch, but it's definitely like a common comeback to, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, criteria the Criterion app does um, commentaries on like you can turn it on on the app, and I I it would be something I would implore like all other streaming services to start doing. And I know it probably it's a cost thing; they probably have to pay extra for that audio file or whatever oh yeah of course but how cool would it be to be like able to watch this and then watch it with the dvd commentary that i had on the special edition yeah that you i mean i found that to. hour and a bit documentary on the making of that had a lot of information but yeah not all the same stuff and no for sure and and it's it just also i like when dvds came about it was the thing that like cha- changed my w- world it's what got me interested in filmmaking was being able to listen to filmmakers talk about making film yeah, I mean, uh, uh, to go a slightly different route on that, Peter Jackson talks about um, a lot of the making of stuff of Lord of the Rings, too, and that was kind of, like, near the beginning of of the time when that became, like, the marketable thing about DVDs and big movies, is you sell them as having all of this extra content on yeah. it because you had the technology to do it now. Exactly, yeah, and it, it started with Laserdisc and then went to DVD and Blu-ray and blah, blah, blah. But because we're going to streaming, it seems that less and less commentaries and stuff are happening unless people are putting. But I think they in this 20 year window of, of this technology, whatever, that they've became a thing. I, I think we'd be missing out on something if we lost them. And the reason I bring it up is because it would be how I revisit some movies. Like, I, yeah. would, I would, of course, revisit. I'll revisit this movie again and watch it without any distraction of some some. Uh, somebody talking over it but sometimes it is nice to go revisit some movies and then watch it again with the commentary even if there's movies that i've seen the commentary for that i've i've rewatched with the commentary years later because i've kind of forgotten some of the insights especially with older films they'll have like usually a film historian and so and then like a someone who's working in the industry that really likes that movie criterion does a lot of really really cool stuff with that for their movies and um and i and that's the stuff that like as a film nerd that i like i love is it like yeah film buff film nerd whatever like that that's where i find the juice and i'm like oh that's, that's... your juice is yeah it? <laughs> yeah yeah that, i didn't mean to do that but yeah that's exactly it um uh yeah so uh for me of course as i've said i will rewatch it uh what about um seeking this out is this a movie that you would you would seek out and or if it was difficult to find and would you tell others to seek it out um that's interesting. I I feel like if I say no, then I'm devaluing the cultural impact that the movie has had and the quality of the film and all those things. But I also think that like at the end of the day, it's it's a really good movie, but if you have to go a long ways out of your way to find it, unless it's really up your alley, I don't know that it would necessarily... Like, you can find similar things in other movies if just not as well done um, or not as insightful or thoughtful. Um, and for me, I would 100% track it down if it was hard to find 
for myself, but I don't know that uh, everybody I would say that to would agree with it being valuable to do that. That's interesting. Um, I don't know many people that have, didn't like this movie. I don't know many people that didn't, but, but I don't. No, but because of that, I, I would like I would be confident, and if I if I was having a conversation with someone and the subject of this movie came up and they said, "Oh, I've never seen it," I would say, "Absolutely, go watch it," and. Um, and yeah, and and like I would loan them my DVD. Copy I, I guess I say and that like, with the context. Like when we started this question, it was very much a like it's seeking it out if it's impossible to yeah, find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so. True. Like if you have Prime already, you should a hundred percent watch it. Yeah. Or if you have access to a DVD or something, you should definitely track that down. Yeah, but to me, I guess, I guess, and but that that would be the difference between you and I on this question for this movie is that I do think this is like a seminal piece. Partly because of the two titans that like lead it, but also I think Michael Mann does do some really interesting things. I oh, think for that, sure. I think the the main big heist, the shootout in the downtown LA, I think is well. It's a scene if you've never seen this movie that you've seen before because it's been ripped off in a thousand other things. To the point that I I believe they're uh, in one of the behind the scene featurettes, uh, one of the anniversary interviews. Michael Mann references that this movie has been blamed for like four or five different heists around the world, and I one mean, of them was in L.A. in 2004. Oh, really? And guys came out and were fully body armor and shot fully automatic weapons at the like massacre. Like, and they the two assailants died eventually. Um, but it was like a brutal thing and they blamed this movie because when the cops went back to their uh, headquarters hideout whatever bad guys have nowadays uh, apartment uh, <laughs> uh, they found heat and they found notes incredible notes about oh. heat in it and stuff and but Michael Mann was like well they didn't watch it very closely because the point of assaulting the cops in that scene is to escape it's not to kill police uh, no it's to so get out as fast it's as to they shoot can. and move shoot and move shoot and so what happens when you're getting ambushed? Well, you attack the ambush. That's the only way you can get out because it, in a war of attrition, as it would be if you're just standing between like trench warfare. The shooting, cops are going to win. They the have more money. They have more resources. They have more people. Every, ten, every five minutes, new cops are showing up to keep shooting at you. So you're going to lose. So that in this scene, he talks about um like and in the same way they talked about that fort bragg with the reload apparently like this is also close combat like training this is how they i don't know that they use it for that but this is also like michael mann ripped off the army for this for this is it or not ripped off but he used their techniques and so the forward progress and everything they're doing and the trading off of like uh, cover fire suppression fire and moving and all that stuff it's very tactically sound and so these guys in 2004 although a disaster and many police officers i believe lost their lives or at the very least were injured or traumatized um that day um the the guys just stuck behind thing they didn't like it wasn't a shoot and move thing and it and michael mann wasn't saying like idiots or anything like that don't get me wrong he was but he was making the point that like to the character of these guys in the movie, they weren't going, they weren't killing the cops because they're maniacal, like sociopaths. They were killing the cops because the cops were in the way to freedom. And, yeah, it's kind of that like cornered animal sort of situation. Yeah. 
Um, but anyways, uh, that that was a little tangent again, little addition. There you go, extra content. Uh, Aha. Thanks for staying to the end, <laughs> as we always do in these bits. I find, but um, but no, I uh, yeah, I would tell people someone to seek this out. I, I do think this movie is a template for a lot of heist movies that have come, and especially there was like a movie Den of Thieves that came out um about three years ago it was like straight to um streaming i think i heard the name at some point because a lot of like 80s actions fans loved it and were like where did this movie come from i had never heard of it but it it is like a somewhat carbon copy of this movie and which that, in and of itself is a remake of michael mann's earlier la Take sure Down, yeah but um it's kind of interesting it is interesting um Except apparently, if you watch, I've never seen Ellie Takedown. Apparently, either. if you watch the two, you can really see the new mastery he has of skills and stuff. By the way, another Michael Mann movie I don't think we mentioned earlier was Thief. No, if we you've didn't. never seen the James Con Thief movie, you should check that out. It's a '70s film. It's great. Duly noted. But yeah, so and then finally, I guess, uh, did you find in the two watchings that you did with this? That you had to be in a mood to watch it, and no, and a little addition this week to this question is. In all those years from film school to now, why were you never in the mood to watch this movie? Ah, interesting. Um, I don't think you have to be in a mood for it. I think you have to be prepared for a long movie. Um, if you're not ready to have a three-hour film going, uh, you may not be ready for it. But I think that at any point of mood, you can easily easily sit down and get into it. Um, the reason I didn't watch it was somewhat an access thing um i didn't have prime for example for uh for quite a lot of time between prime video anyways i didn't really use it between when i left film school and kind of now um and i also it was i guess it was just one of those sort of like it it wasn't it wasn't a conscious decision no i didn't actively choose to not watch it i just sort of never actively thought to watch it i guess i don't know it's it's weird it's this thing i do where like unless i write it down and make like a point of going to my list and being like what list am i gonna like what movie off my list am i gonna watch i just like find something right 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 right. whatever pops up so yeah um for myself uh mood for this one i i do think you like you've said you have to be in a mood for like to put in well you, uh, you said time like commitment but also i think just a little bit of work as well yeah it's not like you can just turn it on and kind of just do your thing you got to watch it because this movie if you're not paying attention the stuff between the heists could come across to you as boring but that is only if you aren't don't understand the characters and then because all of that stuff because that that's in my early viewings of this like 13 14 year old me um, I didn't like like I said I, even back then I remember the pacing didn't bug me but movies were also had a like little bit of a different pace back then they were slower but yeah. um, the other thing is that like but I do remember as I grew up and saw it a few more times I do remember thinking I would get bored and there would be lulls in the action in this movie um, but I I didn't find that this time on viewing. I haven't found that in the last few many times I watched this. The pacing of this movie is amazing, um, but I, I would I would w- warn you that if you're going to watch it and then not pay attention and just kind of be on other things, and you're, you're not going to get a. Then you're not going to. Then you will be bored in parts, and it and then the the payoff isn't going to be as brilliant for you, and the, and the pathos of these characters isn't going to be as brilliant for you. 
um, which I think is why this movie's brilliant. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess finally, uh, what are our ratings for this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I'd have to give this like, like thirty-five bags of cop cocaine. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, we both thought along the same character because I, I was just gonna say like, um, like a thousand words redlined uh, <laughs> in the audio from Pacino, just screaming at the top of his lungs like a bonkers uh, human being he is, going from zero to a million in three and a half yeah, yeah. milliseconds, uh, having to have this uh, the board op uh, soundboard op really operating the the knobs on his lav when I you mean be you know you got to keep them on their toes right <laughs> yeah, otherwise yeah. they just might fall asleep yeah. in the chair. Mr. Pacino, do you think you're gonna scream in this take? I don't know. <laughs> She's doing a great act. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you guys very much for joining us for this one. Uh, you can find us on social media, on Instagram at Cinematics Podcast, and on Twitter at Cinematics Cast. As always, there are spoilers in this episode, so if you want to not have the movie spoiled for you, you should definitely check it out before you listen. Um, so until next week, thanks for listening, guys. Bye.